Yeah. If you picked out randomly a hundred theologians out of a, a mass of professional theologians and let's say Christian theologians, mm -hmm. and you asked them, did God initially create the universe out of absolute nothing? At least 90% would say yes. I would say no. The idea that God created the universe initially out of nothing is not in the Bible. In fact, in the early verses of Genesis, it talks about the spirit hovering over the face of the deep. Mm. There's something there at the very beginning. But in the history of Christianity, along about the third or fourth century, the idea that God created out of nothing became really popular. It was actually invented by a couple of Gnostics who believed that the world was inherently evil and a good God wouldn't want to have his fingers messed up in this evil stuff. But many Christians picked up on it because it seemed to, to them to portray a God with more power. I mean, it sounds intuitively like a God who can create something out of nothing is more powerful than a God who has to use stuff to create things. Mm -hmm. But the problem that I point out with this view is that it makes it giving a good answer to the problem of evil, I think, impossible. Four in the morning, I'm wondering what I should do. My mama told me, keep praying, like, look at all you've been through. And I've been going so crazy, you kept me out of the zoo. And I've been hoping that I could have all my moments with you. Because you're perfect, perfect. You ain't never know. Tell a light in the dark room. You hey there, everybody. How are you doing? Welcome to November. The year is almost over. We're doing it, people. It's almost done. Thank the Lord. Ah, I'm so glad that you're here. Quick announcement, because I realized I forgot to say this anywhere. So throughout the month of October, I was raising money for Black Lives Matter. So I ended up sending about $266 in support of Black Lives Matter. And that is all from you. Well, to be clear, I pitched in a little bit of my own money as well. But that is from people that went and they bought anything throughout the month of October at the store for the show where you can get any merchandise that you want. The current bestseller has been the beanies as well as the shirt based on Amos as it relates to justice and compassion. Thank you so much, every single one of you, for your support in that. It was an honor to do that. This week, I brought back a guest to be a returning guest. So Thomas J. Ord was on the show a long time ago, like almost a year and a half, two years ago, brought him back. He wrote a book called God Can't, and that book has been powerful for a lot of people. And it's the idea and the concepts of process theology where God is not marionetting, I think that's the word, uh, the entire universe in a way that he is controlling outcomes. He just can't because that's not what love does. And he got some pushback and a lot of questions about that book. And so he wrote a follow-up book that honestly I think is longer than the first book as he runs through some of those questions. You know, what do we do with prayer? How do we handle miracles? What's the whole freaking point? So brought him back on. We had a good discussion about it. I think that you will enjoy it. Here we go. Dr. Thomas J. Ward. You can just call me Tom. I know, but it feels good to say it once. Get it out of the way. <laughs> Get it out of the way. Um, 
I see your name bandied about so much online and everywhere else that I feel like we need to put the doctor in there just so that, you know, people know we're serious and then we can we can jump into it. So how have you been, man? Well, not too bad considering the pandemic, but yeah, trying to get out and do some hiking despite the uh, the smoke that's in the air here in Idaho. Yeah. Your pictures are amazing. And are you? Oh, thank are, you. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like I, I, I'm annoyed. Amazing. So there's, so there's your pictures. And then a friend of mine, I have no idea if he listens to the show, a friend from when we lived in Lynchburg, he's a wedding photographer, but he also takes just, you know, I pulled over on the side of the road. Cause this looks like it would be a good picture. And you're like, man, why are you so talented? This is annoying. Uh, just, just annoying the way I am with my pun game. I feel like he is and you are with the picture. So um, are you able to still get out with all of the smoke and everything else? And Or is there nothing to really take pictures of besides landscapes? Well, yeah, there's not a lot of photo ops right now. Sunday afternoon, I hiked up to a lookout on the Oregon-Idaho border. and My legs are feeling it today. But, you know, there's nothing for the lookout to see except just smoke that maybe you might be able to see a quarter mile, maybe a half mile. Mm. But, yeah, it's... Not much good in terms of uh, landscape photography. Yeah. yeah. For those listening, I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, do you put them somewhere, a repository that I could point people to? Uh, well, actually, yeah. You can go to my website, and there's a link to a few of them, maybe a 100 of them on my website. So, uh, yeah, yeah thomasjor.com. Yeah. Perfect. We normally do this at the end. But anyway, I didn't intend okay. to go there. But um, <laughs> so, um, but what else has been new? So you're, since the last time I talked to you, you're like the director of something for open theology, or I'm saying that wrong. Like, what has been keeping you busy as it gets on to that front there? Yeah, we were saying earlier, it's been a couple of years. So in the last couple of years, I now work at Northwind Theological Seminary and direct doctoral students in open and relational theology. It's a fully online seminary uh, based in Florida, and I live in Idaho. So um, everything's <laughs> online, uh, which I really enjoy. Um, so that's happened. Uh, another book came out, a follow-up book to God Can't called Questions and Answers for God Can't. And last summer, I uh, started the Center for Open and Relational Theology, uh, of which I'm a director, and there are over 100 people involved. And if you want to go to a website and check that out, the uh, web, well, just type in Center for Open and Relational Theology. Yeah. I want to get to the Q&A. Um, honestly, when I got the Q&A, Thomas, I was like, I mean, I read the other book. I felt pretty good with it. And then as I read through, I was like, actually, I don't have a lot of these questions. However, I hear a lot of these questions. Mm, and um, yeah. Yeah. But before I get there, what do you mean open theology? Like relational, I kind of understand unless you're using that word in a different context. What do you mean open theology? Yeah. Well, open theology is a word that's typically used for the idea that God actually experiences time moment by moment like we do, and therefore the future is truly open to God. God not only doesn't predetermine things, but also God can't foreknow with absolute certainty everything that's going to happen because such knowledge is available to nobody because it's not yet happened. Mm. So like open theism. Yeah, that's open theism. Yeah. So, the last time I tried to tackle that topic, I had Greg Boyd on. And it was like, oh, I think I was like, well, I, no, I was like eight episodes deep into this and I was not prepared. And his is one I tell often 
when people are like, well, when was the most times or one of the times that you were most embarrassed on the show? And I didn't edit it out because I try to be as authentic as possible. Yeah. But he's talking to me and I didn't record the videos then. And he's like, Seth, stay with me. I can see juice dripping from your ear. Stay with me. And he's still not like I, I did. Um, I did the transcript for that one not long ago. And I was like, God, I still I still don't. It still doesn't make much sense to me. I should probably well, try to tackle it, but that is not why I brought you here today. Though maybe I bring you back for that. Maybe I'll get you I'd and love Greg, to do that. and then I could feel uh, entirely ignorant for the entire <laughs> the entire time. Um, uh, is that actually? I do want to ask one more question on that. So, is that a thing that the the church is pivoting back towards that view, or is it more of a new thing where you're like, yeah, we're 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 building some larger foundations? Like, what do you feel as the director for that for for kind of the future? I feel like there's lots of people who are interested and endorse it. Um, it's probably something that's, you know, you can find a few people here and there in Christian history who've endorsed something like it, but it's full bodied form is really something that's emerged in the last 30 years or so. Yeah. And uh, there's lots of interest, not only amongst the sort of the average person, but scholarly scholarly books are being written and you know it's it's a real major player now and this is again another ignorant question do you feel like that's because of our further and further and deeper understanding of kind of quantum mechanics and the way the universe works or is it more of a religious thing uh, you know the the uh, motives for people to come to open theology vary mm -hmm. pretty widely and a, a book i wrote in 2015 called the uncontrolling love mm -hmm. of god I point out sort of four major strands. Some people come to it by the way they read the Bible, in which there's lots of passages of God changing his mind, repenting. Some people come at through it, uh, to open theology kind of through theological questions about free will. Others come from philosophy and questions about God's relation to time. And to, to your point, there's a significant number of scientists who believe in God, who think that believing uh, or endorsing an open theology view is really the best way to reconcile hmm. the best of contemporary science and theology. Hmm. Yeah, I'm going to have to dig into this more and more. Um, so let's pivot to the actual thing that I'm prepared for as opposed, <laughs> as opposed to this nine-minute riff of, of ignorance. Um, but those are my favorite parts of the show. So you wrote a follow-up or compiled a follow-up to God Can't, um, which for those listening is the last thing I had you on for. You can go back in the archives. I have no idea what episode it is. Um, I do remember when I did the transcription having a lot of links to some of the other things that you said. Um as it linked out to the internet. So why did you need to write a follow-up to God can't like the Q and a what's its purpose kind of, why did it come to be? Yeah. Well, I was playing defense and offense. So um, the idea of God can't is that God's love is inherently uncontrolling, which means God can't control anyone or anything. And this has lots of implications, but the one that I focused on in that book, God Can't, is the problem of suffering and evil. Mm -hmm. If God can't single-handedly stop it, then we don't have the kind of questions we usually have of why a powerful and loving God doesn't prevent evil. Now, when that came out, people were asking me really good questions about the implications of that view. Like, you know, well, if God can't single-handedly stop evil, 
then can I really pray and ask God to do something and think that God's going to fix it? Or Mm -hmm. what does this mean about the afterlife? And so I was kind of in this book playing defense in the sense of saying, you know, you can still believe in prayer. You can still believe in miracles in the afterlife and also believe in the uncontrolling love of God view. Yeah. The offense side was to say, not only can you believe in prayer and petitionary prayer, et cetera, also, um, this is actually a better way to think about prayer, miracles, God's action, and all that sort of stuff. So it's not just sort of, yeah, it's okay for you to continue to believe X. It's actually warranted and you're justified. It's more plausible to believe in it if you think God is inherently uncontrolling. Yeah. So if it's all right with you, so there's eight chapters, which I'd assume are the eight largest questions that that people sent in to you. I'll be real clear. I didn't read the little intro because I feel like that often gives away some of the stuff in the book and I, I would just rather read the book. And in yours, I tended to jump around. I didn't read it from A to B because it, it was, it's not a book like with a central thesis. It's just answering questions. Right. So I wanted to tackle a few of the topics and a few of the chapters specifically and, and maybe if it works, quote some of your book back to you and kind of have you rip those apart because I don't remember exactly what we spoke about in the prior episode, but I do remember a lot about theodicy and pain and suffering, cancer right. specifically, um, as, as it relates to what my wife does for a living. And, um, and yeah, on miracles, which you brought up just a minute ago, I'm going to read this to you. So you say, my beliefs about miracles had undergone change, but I'd done no academic research on the subjects. And that as you wrote the chapter in God Can't, you had questions of your own. Can you kind of break apart a bit, kind of some of your belief of miracles, some of that research and how it impacted, and then how that relates to people saying, and and I would also agree, you know, if God can't do something, how do I explain this miracle or that miracle or that? And people have amazing stories, and I have no idea how to fact check or vet those stories. Um, I don't even know if that's the point. Yeah, um, miracles are important because on the one hand, if you say you don't believe in miracles, then you've got to give some kind of answer to really weird, wild, and good things that occur. And uh, folks, you know, claim to have seen miracles a lot of different times and places. Not, I mean, just even setting aside what the scripture says about it. So if you reject miracles, you've got a lot of explaining to do. If you accept miracles, you've got even more explaining to do. Because then the question is, why aren't there a whole lot more miracles? Why don't miracles happen more often to help us, to rescue us, to give us new insights? Um, It seems like if God can do miracles sometimes and God has the power to do it single-handedly, a loving God would do a whole lot more miracles. And so what I try to do in this chapter is to say, you know, we really can affirm miracles if we believe God acts and creatures respond or the conditions of creation are aligned. This means that miracles are never, and I repeat, never, actions in which God single-handedly determines outcomes. They're always actions that involve some kind of creaturely contribution, whether it's intentional or amongst inanimate objects. And the bo- what I think is the offense or the, the, the good news about this is we don't have to blame God for not doing more miracles when we think they should happen, but we can give God credit as the source of miracles when they do happen, but also acknowledge there was some kind of creaturely contribution. 
Hmm. Yeah, and so that creaturely part is the part that I struggled with, not when I read your original book, but this yeah. one. So there's a part in here where you talk about laws, agents, and inanimate objects, and mm-hmm. the concept of inanimate objects or organisms or like the concept of an amoeba that appears to have no conscience or maybe the plant above me, like being a part of a miracle still makes no sense to me, like at, mm. at all, like how that has anything to do with anything at all. Yeah. So I think miracles at that kind of level of complexity are far less common. I mean, you look at the Bible and the vast majority of Jesus miracles involve agents of some kind, whether or not they're those cells, we're talking about agency in our bodies, or, you know, if you believe in demonic beings or that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's more difficult, however, to think about how use the word amoeba. For me, I think amoeba respond to their environments. So uh, I, that's not a hard one for me. It's harder for me to think of like dirt or rocks. Hmm. Like I don't think they're responsive. Actually, before I say dirt or rocks, let me say about the amoeba. Just because I think the amoeba responds to its environment doesn't mean I think it's conscious. So that's uh, an important point here. I think there's responsiveness amongst very simple entities uh, of reality, but I don't think they're sitting around thinking about it, like, how should I respond here? It's very uh, almost automatic. Uh, And really, when you think about, you've mentioned your wife. What's the line of work she's in again? She's a pediatric oncology nurse, hematology, um, anything related to that, yeah. When you listen to physicians uh, talk about, you know, their subjects and, and people, they often talks about uh, bodies responding, cells responding, viruses responding, uh, immunities kinds of things. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of dynamic language about what's going on in the body, and I'm affirming that and saying, why don't we think about that in terms of God acting as well? Not that, you know, cells have robust freedom like you and I have, but they have some kind of responsiveness. And that's going to be different from water and rocks, which I think are inanimate, but that's another topic. Hmm. Well, so you referenced dirt and rocks earlier. So how does that relate? Um, And also, I've kind of got issues with your definition of consciousness, because like the thermostat above me that's controlling the environment that I'm sitting in, um, which must be similar to yours, uh, I mean, consciousness is, I believe, if, unless I'm wrong, like scientifically, is just a programmed environment that responds to its environment in a predictable way, whether or not we like the way. You know, so the, my thermostat is conscience in, in that mentality. That has nothing to do with dirt, but um, when you said that, I was like, I mean, my thermostat is equally as conscious as, as an amoeba would be. However, dirt and rocks um, rip that apart for me a bit. Yeah. So um, in the book, I talk a little bit about uh, a position in philosophy known as panpsychism. And it's the idea that even the smallest units of reality have some kind of responsiveness. But I don't make the claim that dirt and rocks have responsiveness. And the difference between, let's say, an amoeba responding and a pebble not being able to respond is the way a pebble is constructed. So um, and kind of the technical word in, science, in philosophy of science is an amoeba is an aggregate. And aggregates don't have a centralized organizing uh, individual 
Whereas I believe minds are our organizing individual. I think dogs have minds. I think even in amoeba, they probably don't have minds, but there's some sort of organizing center that enables it to respond as a whole. Mm-hmm. So what that means for miracles is that it's easy for my scheme to account for um, miracles involving agents of some kind, because I can say, look, they cooperated with God. But when it comes to like parting the Red Sea or Jesus walking on the water, uh, that's a little harder because I don't think water makes you know choices to respond to God or not. But I do think we can talk about divine action at the quantum level. We can bring in um, theories from, or I mean, um, suppositions from chaos theory and those kinds of things to help uh, make sense of those kinds of ideas. Yeah, I have some. I don't want to stay on one topic. I literally could could, could continue to go there. Uh, so back, like towards the back end. So when I got to, you got a chapter called "If God's Creating the Universe, Why Can't God Stop Evil." And in the middle of that chapter, so it's at about page 126, you talk about creatio ex nihilo, and I'm not sure if I'm saying that right because I don't know Latin, so perfect. And um, for those that aren't listening, that's just basically like, you know, from nothing comes something, right? I'm saying that correctly or maybe I'm getting it backwards. And so you talk a little bit about the significance of that in Christian theology and in Christian history uh, and the early Christian thought, you know, Philo and a bunch of people. But then you go on to talk about a new theory of what you call initial creation. Um, and you call your pre- creation creatio ex. Nope, not going to say it right. I'll let you say it. Um, I don't know how to say the rest of those words. The but, English is creation out of creation, everlastingly in love. Yeah. So first off, what is that? If you could maybe rip apart both of those and kind of interplay them together. And then what does that have to do with God stopping evil? Yeah. If you picked out randomly a hundred theologians out of a, a mass of professional theologians, and let's say Christian theologians, mm-hmm. And you ask them, did God initially create the universe out of absolutely nothing? At least 90% would say yes. I would say no. The idea that God created the universe initially out of nothing is not in the Bible. In fact, in the early verses of Genesis, it talks about the spirit hovering over the face of the deep. Mm. There's something there at the very beginning. But in the history of Christianity, along about the third or fourth century, the idea that God created out of nothing became really popular. It was actually invented by a couple of Gnostics who believed that the world was inherently evil and a good God wouldn't want to have his fingers messed up in this evil stuff. But many Christians picked up on it because it seemed to to them to portray a God with more power. I mean, it sounds intuitively like a God who can create something out of nothing is more powerful than a God who has to use stuff to create things. Mm -hmm. But the problem that I point out with this view is that it makes it giving a good answer to the problem of evil, I think impossible because if God can create something out of nothing, then God would be able to do that. Assumingly in the present, God should be able to instantaneously create a steel wall to block bullets or whatever. Mm-hmm. My proposal, which uh, I think here is the first time it's maybe, no, no, I, I published it another place as well. But anyway, it's uh, still relatively unknown. It's the idea that God has always been creating. Our world is only a world in a chain. Our universe is only in a chain of universes. And God 
uh, has always been creating out of that which God previously created, and this creative process is everlasting. Mm. It's a really big new idea, but I think it's important for helping us to answer the problem of evil. So that's my question. So why? Why is this creation, all this this continuous creation, an answer for the problem of evil? Um, because if anything, I think people would say, well, evil exists, and so maybe God created it. And the fact that he continues to create maybe means that's why we still have evil. At least that's the cynical yeah. part of my mind is, yeah, of course we still have evil because he still sucks at creating. We're really doing yeah. it, guys. Yeah. That's exactly, that's the right way to think, I think, if if you believe in God can create something out of nothing. Mm -hmm. But if you're like me and you think God has always been creating out of that which God previously created, that means that God always works out of what's already the case. God can't instantaneously shift things one way or another because there are other creative agents and processes alongside of God. So that means God in my view, didn't create evil. First of all, I don't think evil is a thing, but God, the possibility for evil is built into the very fabric of creation because creation always has some kind of creative interplay or process or response to God and creation at whatever levels of complexity can sometimes choose to do other than what God wants. Mm. Can I go back to what you said three sentences ago? You said yeah, evil no evil, <laughs> evil isn't a thing. Yeah, I don't think evil is a thing. Tell me more. So um, maybe it's kind of obvious when I put it this way. Mm -hmm. You don't open up your drawer and find evil sitting there. You don't look up in the sky and see evil flying by. It's not an actual thing. What I think evil is, is a quality that describes some events in the world. I think a genuine evil is an event that all things considered makes the world worse than it might have been. Okay. So it's the quality of an event that makes it good or evil. Yeah. So if miracles are things where you, I, maybe me, the doctor, the organisms, the rocks, the whatever, all are conspiring, um, I'll use a word from Mark Karras, for things to kind of come together in shalom, would evil then be me choosing instead to break things? or making a, a, a choice so selfish that it does break things for my gain. Well, what I think sure. is gain. Is that, that fair? That's, that's, that's one instance of evil. I mm -hmm. think there's natural evils. So I, I believe in random uh, chance events that can make the world worse. So it wouldn't just be free will choices that are negative. It could be also be other events as well. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me go. This is so. This is a big one that I have. I've gotten this even this week, and I've been extremely, well, not extremely. I've been a little more devil's advocate than than I, than I want to let on here, Thomas. Just because not everyone has read either of the books. Yeah, yeah. So I'll I'll back up a bit. So what my views on the kingdom of God and possibly hell, I think, don't line up with most um, Christians. And so because of that, the way that I pray and the way that I view sin and evil and hell and pain are a little bit different. But in here, there are a lot of questions about, so, and you talked about it a bit at the beginning on why do we pray? So is prayer for me, is it have any point at all, or is it just like a placating pacification to make me emotionally ready to do something else? Like what is the purpose of prayer if God can't do anything and I have to act as the agent. Yeah. So I, I don't say God can't do anything. Mm -hmm. My phrase is God can't bring about results single-handedly. Okay. 
So, um, and here I'm, sh I'm assuming we're talking about petitionary prayer because sure. there's mm -hmm. obviously lots of forms. Yes. So my view is that our prayer has a real influence on God. I'm a relational theologian, as we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So I think God is affected by our actions. I also think that we live in an interrelated universe. So our actions not only affect God, who's, uh, who's divine, but also creatures in the world. It also affects our own bodies. Now, I think all those actions don't control others, don't control our, even our own bodies or God, but moment by moment, they change the world in such a way that new possibilities, new opportunities, new avenues for action might emerge because mm -hmm. we prayed in one moment. So prayer, yes, can have benefits for ourselves, but I think it has benefits beyond ourselves because a God of love works with whatever's happening in the world to try to bring good. Yeah. So you have a Facebook, I think it's a Facebook group, like an uncontrolling God can't kind of Facebook group. I spent some time in there over the last year looking at some of the questions that other people have asked. And there's a chapter in here that is it's chapter five on Jesus that I didn't see a lot of people asking. And so I'm curious if that's just you, like, hey, this should have been in the first book. We really need to talk <laughs> about Jesus. Or if maybe there's a bunch of people that just really didn't want to put that out on the internet. And so instead they just called you or emailed you privately. Like, how does Jesus fit in? And I'm just going to use your your wording here. How does Jesus fit into a theology of uncontrolling love? Like, I'm, I'm glad the chapter's there, but yeah. I didn't see a lot of people asking it. No, no, they don't. And, and when I speak at public events and conferences, very few people ask me about Jesus. I think because most people assume Jesus is an example of love. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to put this in the book because I think I can make really strong claims about Jesus expressing uncontrolling love, even on those kinds of events that people are going to wonder about, like uh, what most people call the virgin birth or Jesus's miracles, or the resurrection of Jesus. In that particular chapter, I point out that we don't have to believe that God single-handedly controlled Mary or any of the people healed, or even Jesus in the resurrection, to believe that there, those miracles actually happened and God acted and creatures responded. Mm. So Christologically then, how do I wrap that up? So if there's a pastor listening and they're like, yeah, I really need to begin yeah. to maybe incorporate some of this into messages on Sunday or Saturday, it really doesn't matter, or, or whatever day your Zoom church happens to meet, because that's the world that we live in. <laughs> Christologically, how would one begin to prepare a congregation to hear something with a framework of canonic love? Because it's not the way traditionally that Jesus has been. Yeah. Um, approached or, or talked about? Yeah. What I would do is begin with all of the passages that talk about Jesus responding to God's call mm -hmm. in, in his life. It's what scholars call a spirit Christology. Mm -hmm. That is what makes Jesus uh, so unique and his at the source of why we call him divine is that he responds perfectly to God's action in the world and in his life, the Holy Spirit, we might say. Um, Jesus was not omniscient. He wasn't omnipresent. He wasn't omnipotent in either the classical sense or even the sense that I would want to use that word. Mm -hmm. All of those key divine attributes don't uh, fit Jesus. But there is one that I think does, and that is Jesus seemed to love perfectly. 
And so if I was talking about uh, Jesus to my congregation, I would want to talk about how this particular individual we need to imitate because Jesus responds perfectly to God's call in his life moment by moment. Mm. The first question in that the line of question I asked was about miracles. And so the reason yeah. I wanted to pivot to Jesus is I wanted to book in those two together a bit. Either Jesus just really bats at whatever, I, I'm not good at baseball. I don't know if you're supposed to bat a thousand or if you're supposed to bat zero, 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 one, whatever is the good number, like swing and connects every <laughs> thousand, time. Thousand, yeah. Sure, absolutely. He's, he's crushing the ball every time he's up at plate. So either he is more accurately reading the scenes and able to make things work together towards a like for, for miracles or i'm misunderstanding something so why can one person's ability to enact miracles be so much so vastly exponentially larger uh, and then even yeah. even afterwards you know the apostles and, and so there's just a huge disconnect there for me yeah well let me begin by saying the bible often talks about miracles jesus can't do jesus goes to his hometown and a couple of the gospel writers say he doesn't do miracles there. He can't because they don't have faith. The gospel of Mark talks about Jesus going into a town and healing many, but not all. Jesus shows up to a pool called Bethsaida, and one particular guy can't make it to the pool whenever the waters are ruffled. And Jesus heals him, but nobody else there. Once you begin to look at the gospel stories through an uncontrolling love perspective, all of a sudden things start popping out you didn't notice before. So Jesus didn't bat 100%. Hmm. Secondly, even if he didn't bat 100%, his, his percentage seems a lot higher than most people yes. I know. Yes. <laughs> yes. So what's going on there? Well, I think there's a couple of things we should think about. One, if you're writing a book to talk about how amazing this Jesus is, you're probably not going to influence all the times that things didn't work out very well. <laughs> In other words, when the gospel, when the gospel writers are, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We all do it. Yeah. In some ways it's amazing that so many stories are there that in which Jesus, like the hometown one that are there at all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they've got a particular angle to, to, to present and I'm all in favor of that angle. I'm just saying we need to take that into account. One life to my life I want a pastime not to pass by To this old living show going on in my living room I want a flame to my purpose Like a cord burns and a looped coil From the start to the end like a finish line goal Do you still go to bed past 3 a.m.? Well, and honestly, when you say it that way, that feels a lot like what social media is now. Like the Facebook that I present, that's the best, that's the edited version of me. That's the version yeah. with the good haircut and, um, you know, delete that picture. It doesn't look right. And <laughs> right. All of the garbage is gone. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Um, I want to pivot to some of the questions that I had that I didn't ask in that good. group um, okay. that I don't believe are in there. So two of the things that I've been wrestling a lot with, and then just, I don't think I've said this on the internet yet. Um, there's probably too many people listening to the show, to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, so I buried my dad a few weeks ago, um, oh, which is why I was so late in getting back to you. Um, I had yeah, to yeah. had to go across the country there. And so I have really struggled with, um, I actually took your book with me. I took your book and a book on prayer from Scott Erickson and then the Bible as well. And I read that 
quite a bit because I'm just so mad, still mad, angry. So I really struggle with this view of, you know, God can't um, and canonic love with any form of end time theology as it relates to either the kingdom of heaven or hell. Like I just, so, and I didn't see a lot of people asking about that. And so how do you view eschatology, either heaven or hell or both, through a lens of what you're getting at in, in either of these two books? Yeah. Let me give you my answer by first giving you what I think are three major views on the afterlife and then give you my view as a fourth one. Okay? Mm-hmm. First view, common view, heaven, hell, good people go to heaven or people God chose go to heaven, mm-hmm. unrighteous go to hell, hell for eternal conscious torment. I think that view is crap. I don't believe it. I, I don't either. Yeah, I don't think the Bible supports it, and I'm not alone in that. Mm. Second view, we'll call it classical universalism. Everybody goes to heaven, no matter what they did. Ollie, ollie, income free. A sovereign God who also loves guarantees that every last person goes to heaven. Problems with that. First of all, it seems to make mean that our lives are ultimately insignificant or meaningless. I mean, why in the world should I try to stop climate change right now if I think everyone, in fact, all of creation eventually gets to heaven for eternal bliss? Why not just, you know, be a a hog of of, uh, resources Mm -hmm. Um, or any of my decisions? Actually, do any of my decisions really matter if in the end, no matter what I do, even if I don't want to go to heaven, I'm going to go there because the sovereign God's going to put me there. There's some real problems with what I'll call classical universalism. Mm -hmm. Third option, annihilationism, or some people call it conditionalism. This is the idea that the unrighteous get wasted. They burn up. People who like this view like to look at biblical passages about fire. Mm -hmm. This view either says God actively annihilates them or passively annihilates them by refusing to resurrect them. The upside of this view is God sends no one to hell, but the downside is, and the reason I don't accept it, is it sounds like God just gives up on people. You know, God says, well, I gave Seth 7,892 chances. I'm not going to give him 93. It doesn't go with the idea of God's steadfast love, at least in my understanding. It mm-hmm. doesn't fit with the Apostle Paul says in Romans or Corinthians 13 that love never gives up. It always hopes. So here's my view. God always invites us to eternal life, always invites us to love. We can choose to say yes or no, and that choice continues on in the afterlife. When we say no to God's love, there are natural negative consequences that come. God's not in the business of punishing, getting pissed off and, you know, wailing away on people. But there are natural negative consequences that come from saying no to love. And God is all about love. We say yes, obviously we experience those consequences. But in the afterlife, there isn't a time which God says, you know what, your time's up, no more chances. Nope. God's love is truly relentless. That's why I call it the relentless love view. Mm. Now, this particular perspective doesn't guarantee universal salvation, but it has the real hope that eventually everyone from you and me to Hitler will eventually say yes to God's persuasive love. And if you end up not? 
You reap the natural negative consequences moment by moment, but God never gives up on you. Hmm. So this doesn't guarantee universal salvation like a classical position would. Mm -hmm. um, David Bentley Hart would be a good example of someone who has that view. Yeah. My view has the hope for that, but not that kind of guarantee. Yeah. So the next view is, and this again may just be formed by, um, so I was brought up in all of creation's broken and the only hope is, is Christ. And I don't believe that. I believe in more of an original blessing view of everything now. Um, but as I read through your text and I've given it more thought, um, especially as I now have like two hours back and forth to work cumulatively each day. So I just have a lot of time to drive over the mountains thinking. And so I've been thinking over the last week or so, I think that humans create because we are image bearers of God who continually creates. And I think partly we create evil. And so if God, so my question is, if God can't create evil and we're image bearers, why do we do it so easily? Yeah. Great question. I think one of the key differences between God and us is that God has an everlasting, unchanging, the classic language would be immutable nature of love. Mm -hmm. God must love because that's God's very nature. You and I, we have a choice whether or not to love or to do evil or to do something that's maybe morally neutral, mm -hmm. but you get the point. Mm -hmm. We're not going to always do love because we don't have that kind of nature. God couldn't have created us with that kind of nature because only divine beings have those natures and we're by definition not divine as creatures. So um, I think we can grow into the image of consistent expressions of love, but being made in the nature of God or the image of God doesn't mean we have eternal natures of love. It means the capacity to love, freedom, you know, theologians sort of spin off the image of God in all kinds of directions. But I'm, I'm making the claim it doesn't mean having an eternal nature of love. This will seem like a tongue-in-cheek question, but go with me. Here's, here's the reason I ask okay. it. So <laughs> is this view of God can't, and I'll say that in quotes for people that can't see the video, um, yeah. no pun intended on the word can't there, uh, is it viewed overall in, in the grander scheme of the church, proper church, big C church, as a, as a heretical view or as an unorthodox view or, or no? You know, I don't know that people have really discussed this view in the history of Christianity, mm -hmm. but I suspect if you got that 100 theologians I was yeah. mentioning earlier, uh, the majority would at least say it's unorthodox mm -hmm. or uncommon. Um, you know, people who like it will point to particular theologian history and say, well, that person yeah. kind of says something like that. But um, yeah, I think when I talk about my particular view called essential kenosis, which mm -hmm. is kind of the technical view, yeah. I think that's original. Okay. Um, I don't think anybody's done that. The okay. broader view of limitations on God's power, there have been some other people who've gone down that sure. road. Sure. So my ultimate, my, to, to piggyback off that is the question that I want to ask. So zoom out, it's 50, 60 years from now. Yeah. What, if, if, do you, if you feel like, as you know, if people continue to get educated in this and like, you know, I can get behind that. This changes the way that we live because we're actively processing what we're doing as we're creating and, and being in community with each other. What changes do you hope for or do you anticipate or maybe would long to see in the church for the decade, maybe not after you, but after my children? In the, what, what do you think would institutionally change with this framework underpinning thing as, as opposed to where we're at right now? A lot of Christians think God is pissed at them. Mm -hmm. That would change. 
a lot of Christians think what they do really doesn't matter because God's got the kind of power to fix it all if God wants to do so at the end. So their lives, choices don't really matter. In my view, really matters. Hmm. People got to actually do something. Now, the whole world isn't on your shoulders, but your choices really do make an ultimate difference, not just, you know, screwing around, monkey playing. It matters for eternity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What is what is monkey playing? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I love it. Uh, uh, it's always good to be able to laugh in these. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, good. Yeah. So, is the church a larger church? Does it own the same amount of property? Like, do we still hoard wealth in this view, or does it is it a poverty is it a poverty stricken faith? Like, what? What would that look like? Yeah, I mean, I think the church is going to change no matter if people accept this view or not. So. Correct. Yeah, coronavirus <laughs> is, is exacerbating that at, yeah. at exponential levels. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of people are asking themselves, because of the pandemic, why do I even go to church? Mm -hmm. And that's a legit question. Yeah. A lot of times we do things out of habit, and we don't really think about the consequences. And I would say a fair number of people, either consciously or subconsciously, go to church because they're afraid God's going to punish them if they don't. Hmm. I've got a theology that said God never punishes. So maybe this means people stop going to church. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I suspect, I suspect there's more to the gospel than going somewhere on a Sunday morning or wherever you go. I suspect that the gospel is fundamentally about community of love at work in the world, responding to God's, uh, uh love at work in all places. So even if the word church is not used, or even if Christian's not used, I think if a vision of a loving God begins to permeate our consciousness, become a central idea in civilization, that we can actually have a better world. <laughs> we can actually be more like Jesus. It actually could be more like what I think authentic Christianity is, should be about. Mm. Last question. And I've asked this of everyone this year. So, when you try to explain to someone, you know, when I say God, here's what I mean. Like, if you try to wrap words around a concept that nobody really can, what comes to mind if you're trying to talk about that with someone? Well, as a theologian, I think about this a lot. So <laughs> um, I probably can't give you a little pat answer. Um, I, so far, no one, I don't think out of every episode this entire no one's given the same answer. I mean, a few yeah. people have worked the word Jesus in there and that type of stuff. But overall... Yeah. Every answer has been entirely unique, uh, which has been fascinating. Okay, let me resist your suggestion to make it short and kind of lead up to what I want to say. Is that okay? Fair enough. I, literally, everyone in my house is asleep, so you take as long as you need. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have thought of God as an old guy in the sky or maybe uh, an emperor who gets angry and sends down lightning bolts. And they've seen the problems with that, and they've shifted away from that, and they no longer believe in a personal God. And the kind of language they will use, and when I say they, I mean professional theologians, popular Christian people that you and I would admire, I could say names, and they'll use words like the divine or a loving, a, a love with no uh, the ground of being. They mm -hmm. use all kinds of these kind of abstract language. It gets away from the personal, but is leaning toward transcendence. 
I like the personal. Hmm. So I want to avoid the old man in the sky or the divine monarch throwing down lightning bolts. And I can do that by emphasizing God's God as a universal spirit that can't be perceived by our five senses and yet is giving and receiving moment by moment motivated by love. So it's not just love. It's a being who loves, but is omnipresent. That way of thinking to me makes a lot more sense of my intuitions about what love ought to be like aligns pretty well with personal language in the scripture without getting too anthropomorphic. And also I think covers the really important view, part of uh, thinking about God and that's God's universal presence. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. See, see, nobody has the same answer. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'd like to hear what yeah. other people do. Was there a lot of uh, more abstract things? Oh gosh. Um, <laughs> one of, one of my answers that I laughed out, not when she said it, but when I edited it later, um, she said something to the point of anybody that thinks they can try to wrap words around God is just being logically inconsistent and arrogant. She's like, but let's do this. And you, she like leans in. Um, <laughs> she, was, she was a Jewish young woman that I was speaking with and she's brilliant. Um, but yeah, there's just been so many, um, so many good answers. Um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. been, it's been, I don't know. I, I think next year I may have a different question, like a consistent question because it's, it's yeah, genuinely it's like a thread that, that knits everything together. Uh, if I get really ambitious, I may actually go back through all 48, 50, whatever episodes and just pull those sections out and make uh, it like one huge continuous episode. But I don't even, that might just be a dumpster fire. I don't know what let, that, that would be. Let like. me guess, let me guess at another thing I bet you've heard. Hmm. I bet a lot of people drop the M word, the mystery word. It's uh, one that I really don't like, but no, not so much. I I, not that comes to mind, but that doesn't mean huh. that they haven't. There's been a yeah. lot of conversations this year, a lot of hours. Um, yeah, but that doesn't, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, we'll point people to where they should go. They they definitely should buy the book, which is available everywhere, um, at least from what I understand. And uh, like, where do you want people to go and engage and 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 do things? Well, um, what I want people to go do is to go live a life of love. But mm. I think what you really mean is <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to let you plug the places. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. My books are on all the major, you know, online stores and a few face-to-face -face kind of stores are, uh, so you can find them there. Um, you can go to my website, but yeah, any of those kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I think these books can really help people. So obviously I, I, I want to encourage people to get them, but I truly do want to encourage people to think about living a life of love. That's, that's my goal. Uh, that's my at least my attempt to be the heartbeat of my life. And uh, I recommend it to others. I will say this, this is just an aside. Um, I have no idea if I'll keep this in the episode. So, so the last time you were on, a few months later, um, someone at my wife's hospital asked her a question. Another child had died. And, and to be honest, I don't remember which one because it's, it's, been a, it's just, it's an ongoing river of, of of sadness yeah. there. Um, but they were really struggling with a bunch of stuff and they had asked her because they knew that I have conversations like this. What should I dive into? I actually bought them your book and um, gave it to her. Oh. She gave it to them. And from what I remember, they said, you know, this has been extremely helpful. Um, yeah. And that was so years ago. So yeah. So um, it definitely is. It's, it's, 
reframing this in this way is extreme. I think very powerful. Um, also very hard, but but very powerful. Yeah. But yeah. Well, Thomas, thank you so much for coming back on. Been my pleasure, Seth. Thanks so much. It's an honor. Yeah. Thanks, and I will. I'll have you back. We'll do open theism, and I can literally Great. show. I am so. There's a few topics I'm terrified of. That one is one of them because I just it doesn't make logical sense to me. And yeah. I. I love logic. I, I work at a bank for a living. Like I just, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't compute to me. It's like, it's like ge geometry also doesn't compute. Like it just feels like made up numbers that obviously work because I'm living in a house that was built with geometry, but oh, it just makes me so mad. <laughs> so. Well, that's so, it's kind of strange you say that because a lot of open theists are embraced the notion because they think it is more logical than the alternative. So when our next time we talk, we're uh, well, logical, yes. Well, maybe no. So it's not deterministic. So it's hard right. for me. Right. So like, like, like I can, like I can run amortization tables in my head, and I always yeah. know the answer I'm going to get. And I all, right. like, like input A results in output B. Yes, I can't do I that with that. And so that's why no. I say it's just infuriating. Where I'm like, yeah. no. Like, like, and I think a lot of it is me, if I was God, it would really piss me off. Like just, yeah. how, oh, this is frustrating. What have I done? <laughs> I created this thing and what did I do? This is not what I would, oh my gosh. Uh, I can think of a few biblical passages to support what you're saying right there. <laughs> so yeah, just like, oh yeah. Anyway, but that's, that's, that's a me thing. So anyhow, yeah. well, good. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, you're welcome. I've enjoyed it too. To bed past 3 a.m. Under the thoughts, maybe the guilt of your past weekend. Losing yourself in endeavors that don't profit you. Taking your truths, not failing to prove the fool. That's the show for the week. This show is mixed, edited by me and recorded in my basement. However, it is produced by the patrons. And so I wanted to welcome our newest patron, Shane Wright. Welcome to the community, my friend. That is the only way that this show is possible. I'm so very thankful for every single one of you. Consider supporting the show there. You can find links to that in the show notes or at the website. Uh, you can also follow the show on all the social medias. I think all of the social medias, though some of them are more active than the others. And one of the best ways that you can help the show, if you're unable to financially support the show, is just share a part of your favorite episode on social media, tag a few friends in it. It is one of the best ways that new people and new ears find the show. I wanted to thank AC and Brady James for their music in this episode. You can find more information about Brady James and AC at bradyjamesmusic.com. And you will also find in the playlist for the show on Spotify the links to this week's music as well as all of the past week's music. I'll talk to you next week. Be blessed, everyone. I'll be honest, I've been praying we can see our potential. Cause I've been holding on to nothing with eternal value. I've been saving up my empty hands and there I found you. And I've been chasing after wind like it was all around you Nobody noticing where your heart and your focus is I know all the erosion is telling me what I'm totally 
down, bring me down to the bottomless pit. I've been trying to resist, I've been trying to resist. And all these people been saying I need to change That I've been going for nothing and all my work is in vain They tell me I should be normal but really I think it's strange Cause most people that's talking has never followed their dreams Cause I know that it's meaningless without God I've searched under the sun and laid under facades I've seen